This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the program, Leslie Johnston, CEO of Laudes Foundation, which is reinventing philanthropy by inspiring and challenging industry to harness its power for good. This episode is a conversation from our How to Lead a Sustainable Business podcast. Here's our host, Alana Weston, chairman of Selfridges Group, with more. We are still living in a world where the pursuit of profit trumps all. Growth isn't necessarily the answer. You can't grow your way out of species extinction. You can't grow your way out of environmental destruction. There is a need to rethink growth and to rethink how we measure success. What does a post-growth world look like? Hello, and welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. I'm Alana Weston, and I believe that sustainability will be the next big disruptor of my industry. It has to be placed at the heart of business strategy if we're to address the climate crisis and transition to an economic model that is regenerative and just. The latest IPCC report demonstrates what we all know. There is no time left for incremental progress. Complete systems change is needed for us to grapple with the enormous challenges that face our planet and the people who live on it. I want to focus on the leaders who are driving that change. Throughout this series, I'm going to look at six different sectors where my guests are at the forefront of that reinvention. This week, I'm joined by Leslie Johnston, CEO of Laudis Foundation. She started her career at McKinsey before moving to the world of philanthropy, initially at Technoserve and then with Argidius Foundation, both looking to address poverty. She then joined CNA Foundation, where she was executive director for six years prior to launching Laudis in 2020 as CEO. Laudis Foundation is part of the Brennigmeyer family enterprise. It's responding to the dual crises of inequality and climate change by supporting brave, innovative efforts that inspire and challenge industry to harness its power for good. Providing partners with philanthropic capital, expertise and connections, it works collectively with and through specific industries to help catalyze systems change. The foundation principally works in three sectors, fashion, finance and capital markets, and the built environment. Welcome to the podcast, Leslie. So you've had a long career in the philanthropy space, but you began your working life at McKinsey. What first drew you towards the nonprofit world? Well, believe it or not, what first drew me to the nonprofit world was my formative experience at McKinsey. 
where I was lucky enough to be sent to South Africa in the 90s and work with various businesses who are really trying to embed more diversity and inclusion um, in how they operate. And this was in the post-apartheid times. But I think what really struck me then is what happened outside these suburbs where I was working, where you could see truly the gap between the haves and the have-nots, the poverty, the deep inequality, the lack of opportunity. And it was that kind of shocking experience that made me think, I want to do something that has more purpose. I want to somehow contribute to the solution. And what aspects of your training as a management consultant have you brought to philanthropy? And do you think that makes your approach different? So for me, management consulting was a really good training ground because it helped me to think about the big woolly questions in a more structured deliberate and strategic way. I used those tools and that training that I got from those early days in my 20s that was really formative. I think the other thing about working in consulting and indeed in business, it's helped me develop into, well, what I think is a very results-driven leader. You know, for me, it's really important that everything we do in philanthropy has results. Um, and I feel accountable for achieving the impact that we set out to have. It's interesting what you just said there, because um, traditionally philanthropy has taken the lead from the charities in defining the problem and also the solution. But it sounds like you're taking a really different approach. If I understand your question correctly, you know, is philanthropy more about writing a blank check and leaving it to the partners on the ground to lead the change, or does it need to be more deliberate and more strategic and maybe even more directive? And I do think at Loudest, we are more on the directive side. I think it's a solution that works best for us because we set out with this really big ambition, which is to you know, contribute to what we hope will be an inclusive economy that benefits all, that is climate positive. I mean, that's huge. To get there, we really have to be deliberate in the types of strategic choices that we make. And I think that our thinking around how do the interventions we choose to do lead to the changes we want to see is thinking that we're currently testing with our partners and our grant making. You know, I think the other part of your question is around what we're seeing is very interesting trend in philanthropy with, you know, the likes of Mackenzie Scott and others who are really putting significant core support into frontline organizations to essentially help them do the work that they do better. And it comes without strings. It comes without reporting. Um, and we need that as well. This idea of driving systems change is also quite unusual for foundations because normally what foundations are doing is mitigating the impact of bad policy or maybe campaigning for better policy, but to actually try to help those systems transform, that's quite an unusual goal in itself. Can you tell us a little bit more about why your foundation decided to focus in this way? If you want to change business and industry, 
you have to look at the broader system behind that. And you have to look at the ideas and the incentives that are in that system. It's really difficult to change a fashion industry if you're not taking a step back and understanding why is it that we're not valuing externalities of making a t-shirt? You know, the cost of that should be in the price of a t-shirt, but it's not. So that's being driven by this broader global economic system um, that is very much driven by the neoliberal capitalism model that we've been living under. When I look at Laudis, I think we're really trying to change three things. We're trying to change mindsets. So really get those who have the ability to make change, to convince them that change is needed. We're trying to change the rules, you know, sort of make sure that the the policy and the rules can enable the change we want to see. But we're also trying to change power and the power dynamics. Because usually, let's say when a piece of legislation is being drafted, the voices of those who have the most to lose isn't necessarily incorporated in the way that legislation is drafted. And that's where I think philanthropy can play a role to make sure the voice of a garment worker in Bangladesh is incorporated in how a mandatory human rights due diligence policy is developed. And do you think philanthropy, I mean, a lot of people would say philanthropy doesn't have a role in helping business to change, that business, if it wants to change, should do it for itself. Tell us a bit about how you might work with an industry, a sector, an individual business to try to get them to change their mindset. Foundations in general always have to play a catalytic role. So how do you change business? How do you inspire business? We well, could do it different ways. You can show what's possible. And that's really what we've been trying to do with Fashion for Good, for example, which is to inspire business with innovation and show there's a different way to do wet processing in their supply chains. You can de-risk it. So you can actually invite business to come in and together try new ways of doing things. You can incentivize business to act. And this is where you can work with investors and make sure that investors put in incentives for better business behavior. Maybe interest rates are lower if you have certain sustainability practices, or you can challenge business, which is where the legislation comes in. And you're working across really three sectors, which are fashion, finance and the capital markets, and also the built environment. Why did you choose these sectors and how are you starting to see progress? Yes, well, we chose these three sectors for a couple of reasons. One is that they are sectors that we believe have an outsized impact on the problems we're trying to address, which is climate, so the climate crisis, as well as the deepening inequality in our societies. And if you look at, for example, the built environment, it contributes almost 40% to total global emissions. So if you care about climate, you need to care about the built environment and how our buildings are built. So that's one reason why we pick these, these sectors. But then the other reason, these are industries that the Brennickmeyer family, they know there's deep, deep expertise. It also gives us credibility to be able to work in these sectors. Effectively, what we're trying to do is find those types of interventions where we think we could be impactful, but ultimately where we can catalyze others to come along with us. i give you an example in the built environment. What's really interesting about the built environment is that it not only has a high carbon emissions, but much of that is coming from what they call embodied carbon. And that's actually the carbon that's emitted when you make steel and concrete to go into the buildings. 
So while you can control operational carbon, like how much light and heat you use, the embodied is harder. So we as a philanthropic foundation found that there are solutions out there, but they're not getting to scale. And they're not getting to scale because maybe there's not sufficient incentives by investors. Maybe the insurance companies won't insure wood because they see it's too dangerous. Maybe the industry is just too fragmented. And so what we've done as Loudis is actually set up an entity, a platform, which is called Built by Nature, to connect the dots across to all these unlikely allies, bring them together, and really showcase what good looks like. And the power of philanthropy is you can show what's possible, you can inspire, and you can bring others along with you. And then, hopefully, the industry sees the value and you get that momentum and you start to scale. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've done that in the fashion industry? There's a lot of challenges in fashion, especially now with our completely different geopolitical context and, you know, the fact that we have all the supply chain disruption. And we realize that if you're going to change business as usual, you need innovation. You know, how can we get people out of this mindset that I need to buy clothing, you know, as a product and instead move to use clothing as a service. And that's why we set up Fashion for Good about five years ago, which effectively is a pre-competitive platform for brands and retailers to match make with innovators and then partner together to test their innovations in their supply chains. And I think what has happened over five years is not only have they incubated a couple hundred innovators and linked them to about 20, 25 brands and retailers, but also these innovators have raised over 550 million euros. And that's investment going into the innovators to help them scale. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And it's certainly taking off as a result of your initiatives, but also I think just a general shift in our relationship with stuff. And I think, you know, the circular economy is very exciting and powerful. But what about that old adage, you can't manage what you can't measure? How much should charities be expected to set goals and do the analysis I mean, a lot of funders feel that that's a waste of resource, and then others see it as the key to good governance. What are your thoughts? I do agree that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. However, when you're working 
as philanthropy with others to try to change a system, measurement cannot necessarily be boiled down to KPIs and pretty dashboards. Rather, we really need to shift toward using measurement that actually helps us understand what is that shift in the system that we want to see. At Laudis, we've spent a lot of time and effort shifting from what used to be a KPI-driven approach to one that's more rubrics-driven. And by rubrics, I mean taking these approaches that you see mostly in the education sector and using them to, with our partners to make an assessment as to what extent are all of these efforts that we're doing with our partners contributing to the bigger change that we want to see. So we are measuring, but we're doing it in a way that's a little bit more collaborative, that's more systemic, and also designed with our partners so that they don't feel like we're handing them a bunch of KPIs they need to fill out a report every six months, but instead they choose which rubrics they report against. So, But I think more importantly behind your question is holding ourselves accountable. We are working alongside many other foundations trying to change this very complex system. And if we want to be effective, we have to, well, first of all, share when we fail and let's make sure that other foundations don't make the same mistake that we do. We need to be nimble and adapt strategies as the context changes. And I think the other thing is we need to be transparent. I mean, this goes hand in hand with accountability, but really embrace transparency um, because at the end of the day, this money flowing from foundations, I mean, it is for the public good. I mean, this is not what most people do in philanthropy. And so I guess I would suggest that you're reinventing philanthropy itself by putting these structures in place and not only driving systems change, which is really hard and complex to do, but trying to measure it, which is even harder, I would say. How do you make sure that that doesn't all slow you down? It has taken us time to design how we want to operate. We spent the first year really trying to understand what's the system we're trying to change? What are the levers of change? We interviewed over 300 of our partners and experts around the world to really understand kind of where should we come in with limited resources? What are the best strategic choices? And that did require time. It required resources. And that did mean that, you know, in the first year, we probably couldn't move as quickly as we wanted to. But, um, you know, I think we're in a good position now where we're very clear on the strategic choices, but we've also tried to simplify things for partners so that we can reduce the burden of a partner of receiving money from us. You know, simplifying the proposal documents, simplifying the reporting. You know, is it easier to write a check and hope for the best? Probably. But then you don't have the opportunity to help partners really succeed. And it's not just the money you provide, but it's also the you know expertise, you know, the non-financial support that we give to partners. So it's it's a much bigger approach to just providing funding. And going back to how you lead an organization through that kind of change, how important is building a diverse team to getting those results? It's extremely important because I think that from the beginning and even before Laudis, when we still were CNA Foundation, which was a, a different type of organization, 
it was critical that diversity and inclusion, it was basically a lens through which we would do our grant making. But you have no credibility in doing that if you also don't look at how you walk the talk. Mm -hmm. So for us internally, a deep commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion is absolutely critical. We're only two years old, but we're still on our journey because I think we can still do more. And just as as an example, um, we experimented with blind recruitment recently for a pretty key senior role, Mm. which is where you basically block out all identifying information, the name of the university, the name of your employer, and you really just look at the core skills and the motivation of the candidate. And it was absolutely fascinating. So the, the goal was to try to remove any implicit bias in our recruitment decisions. It's a great example and amazing to hear that you are working in that way. I really loved what you said in a recent interview. You said, the demon is that it's still acceptable to have profit without purpose. So how do we change that mindset in the sectors you're focused on, but also in philanthropy itself? First of all, you need to make a case for change and people need to believe that case and they need to feel empowered to be able to step up and do something about that. Um, So when we talk about mindsets, there's different ways we do that. And I think first it's important to clarify whose mindset you're trying to influence, but then also the tools that we use as philanthropy are really trying to both kind of inspire and challenge. And that inspire element is what I get really excited about because if you can help a CEO, a investor, a policymaker, really imagine what could be and get excited by it and buy into it. You know, then you have this incredible momentum. We see that happening at Fashion for Good, where brands and retailers are just embracing different ways of doing things in their fashion supply chains. We're going to hopefully start seeing that at Built by Nature, where we're going to see different stakeholders and front runners in the industry really be inspired. But that said, that inspiration bit is so difficult. When you think about how do you get people to change their mindsets, you could create fear or you could inspire. And I think sometimes you need a little bit of both. And actually, I do think though what really gets people to step up is more the positive and the inspiration. Um, So that's where I like to focus our efforts. And I have to ask, because I ask myself this question often, the foundation you run is built on several generations of wealth concentrated in one European family. How do you square that reality with your goals around a just transition or what you describe as an inclusive economy? Laudis is very much built on six generations of entrepreneurship and philanthropy. To me, that's really exciting because what that does is even though we're independent from the family's business, you know, it's this heritage that I believe helps us be better positioned to be able to challenge and inspire industry that helps us pull on deep expertise here within the group to give us credibility to work in these industries. It also helps us understand how hard it is to change. And I'll talk about the fashion industry. If you do the right thing for climate in fashion, um, which may mean reshoring, It may mean embracing different business models, so shifting from production to more, you know, rental approaches. What does that mean for the millions of garment workers that are left in Bangladesh that don't have jobs? You know, and I think that's where this heritage and this link to the family is really important because it helps us understand the industry, but also with our philanthropic resources, we can help to influence 
governments and others in these countries to put in basic social protections so that as we do transition to a different way of doing business or a different model for the industry, we can make sure that no one is left behind. And tell me about your biggest personal learnings working in this space. What advice do you offer others who are trying to affect change in their own charitable organizations? You can't do it alone. And I say that because the philanthropy industry is notoriously a bit of a black box. It's not always so open. It hasn't historically been very collaborative. That's changing. I think the urgency of the crises in which we find ourselves is really pushing funders together. And there's lots of examples diverse collaborations across funders. But you can't do it alone, which means it's not about attribution. It's about your contribution with others to the bigger sort of outcome that you want. And also, you need to focus. You know, I think it's important, especially with philanthropy, you know, we're not a huge organization. And so every euro we put into an initiative, we need to make sure it's the right one. So we need to do our homework. We need to understand, is this a fit for philanthropy? And ultimately, as I was saying before, you have to be flexible and you have to be able to question your own strategy and to iterate. Well, three months ago, it was a very different world <laughs> in terms of you know, the, the, the challenges that we're seeing, the potential food crisis that's, that's coming, um, of course, the urgency around climate, but then the urgency around energy security. I mean, there's so many forces that are changing our world. How could a strategy that was written two years ago still be relevant? Leslie, very wise words. And now it's time for our quickfire round. So what's your definition of sustainability? Oh, my whole team knows I hate the word sustainability <laughs> because to me, sustainability isn't enough. Mm -hmm. um, for me, sustainability should be about restoring and regenerating because if you're just sustainable, you're sustaining where we are now, but you really need to do more. And is there such a thing as regenerative growth? Growth is challenging when you're working within fixed planetary boundaries. So I think there's smarter ways that one can approach growth. But the challenge right now is we are still living in a world where the pursuit of profit trumps all. And if that's the case, and given our limited planetary boundaries and the fact that we're crossing threshold after threshold after threshold, growth isn't necessarily the answer. And you can't grow your way out of species extinction. You can't grow your way out of environmental destruction. So I think there is a need to rethink growth and to rethink how we measure success. And we're actually funding a lot of thinkers in the space that are really trying to challenge what does a post-growth world look like? And what's most important, consumer demand, legislation, or innovation? Innovation for me is probably most important because to me, that's more of a, a means to an end. Because ultimately, innovation pushes us to think differently. It pushes us to do more with less. It can be technical solutions that help us solve things we never thought about. It could be business model solutions that help us think of a different way of doing business. And it's not incompatible with legislation. In fact, we need more innovation in legislation. We need policymakers to be innovators. And if you could reinvent one thing to halt climate change, what would it be? I would change our economic frame. And specifically, you know, we are living in a system 
that has been crafted by the neoliberal capitalism that has created much wealth, has lifted millions out of poverty, but also has challenges. It perpetuates a lot of these issues that we're trying to tackle. Climate breakdown, inequality, biodiversity loss, etc. We need to change the frame. We need to change the ideas behind the frame and really looking at getting out of this profit-driven approach to one that is more focused on value and redefining value so it represents what's most important to us. Leslie Johnston, thank you so much for coming on How to Lead a Sustainable Business. Thank you, Alana. It's a real honor to be here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do take a moment to subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. This episode was brought to you by Selfridges Group and Intelligence Squared. The producer was Redzi Bernard with technical assistance from Mark Roberts. I'm Alana Weston, and this is How to Lead a Sustainable Business.